Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. The Believer's Bible class is learning in a series of lessons based on 2 Timothy, the type and meanings of apostasy in the church of our time. And Doug Brady has carefully put this together in such a way for us to understand the importance in stopping the apostasy and sticking with the Bible. And today's lesson, which is a continuation of the previous lesson, is filled with so much truth that you may want to listen to it more than once so that you will fully understand the non-God things that are happening in most churches all around the world, and perhaps ours. Be sure to have your Bible open to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we get into the lesson today. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Over 150 people attend this class and enjoy the deep biblical teachings from our class teacher, Doug Brady. We always enjoy meeting people who are just looking to see what is going on in the Believer's Bible class, and you would be warmly welcomed to our class if you are in the area. Well, I see that Doug has moved to the podium, ready to begin the lesson, so let's go in, find a good seat, and get ready with the Bible already open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here now is our longtime teacher and good friend, Doug Brady. Now, today we're continuing our study of apostasy in the second book to Timothy. And let me review just a minute. You know, Paul teaches in this book that the church in the latter days is going to experience apostasy. And it will be greater than anything that's happened before. Uh, It will be a time in church history when the church will move away from her foundational truths that the doctrines and beliefs and priorities once held to be inviolate will no longer be accepted. And as someone who wants to be faithful to God, what should we do in the midst of this apostasy? Paul is now going to describe for us what when you read it, it looks like he's describing the world and the people in the world. But in reality, and what we need to understand, he is describing what the people in the church are going to become, and some already. And it's amazing to me, but he's warning us of these difficulties to come. So we're going to, if you want to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 2. But before we open God's Word, let's pray. Father, direct us today. Direct what I say. Have your Holy Spirit be the teacher. And may we not just learn this in our heads, but that you place it down into our hearts and make it permanent in us to understand what you're trying to say today. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, 2 Timothy 3, 2-4 For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, I was very excited when I was studying this, that I realized this could be an intercalation. And I did the research, and that's exactly what it is, where you have the main ideas on the top and bottom with the filling, the description of it. I was so enamored with myself that I figured that out 
that I almost missed the fact this is a chiasm. You remember that we learned in Daniel. Let's show them kind of the picture of the chiasm where it starts down there, it goes into the middle, and then comes back out in its direction. And it's a chiasm. And uh, I almost missed that. But I wanted to share that with you. And I didn't figure out a way to put that in your notes. I guess we could get something to do that if you, if you want that. This list of vices and apparent practices that vividly describes what the church will do as it starts to imitate the world, we need to come to understand. And what is it saying? And we started out with misplaced love, misplaced affections, whether it's lovers of self or lovers of money or lovers of pleasure and not lovers of God. Now, the next thing that God is going to talk about is something that comes from that. If you're a lover of self, what is the religion that tends to bring up in your heart? Can anybody tell me? Humanism. Now, what comes next is selfishness. And more specifically, pride. How does God feel about pride? Well, let's look. Let's look. Uh, uh, This is an uncontrolled self-importance. As apostasy starts to grow and to spread, members of the church who have become proud, bringing with them all of pride's various iterations, an uncontrolled self-importance. That describes pride. And here in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, he says this, There are six things which the Lord hates. Now, hates is a very strong word, but that's the word God uses, hates. If you wanted to find maybe a stronger word than hates, maybe the only one you could think of would be it's an abomination. So there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and you can see the rest. What is the number one thing on God's list? Pride. Haughty eyes, pride. Look again in Psalm 5, 5, where the psalmist says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. What in effect is the psalmist saying? Those who are boastful, when they come face to face, God, they can't even look at him. They can't even look at him. They can't stand before his eyes. They will fall. And so... I want us to look at three characteristics that speak of pride in this segment here. For men will be boastful, arrogant, and revilers. Three attributes of pride. Now, some of you may question that third one, but we'll get to that. Let's talk about boastfulness first. Boastfulness, what does that mean? It's showing excessive pride and self-satisfaction in one's achievements, possibilities, and a possessions or abilities, showing excessive pride and self-satisfaction in one's achievements, possessions, or abilities. It almost seems to me that if you're going to be a professional athlete, you've got to master this concept. That's all they do. And that's, I guess, the culture that they are brought about in. I want you to consider something here a second and how this ties in with what John has said in 1 John 2.15, he says, do not love the world. What does that mean? A lover of money and a lover of pleasure. That's just, don't do that. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is, they don't love the Father. This is what Paul is saying here. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father, it is from the world. Now notice, he says, do not love the world. Who's he talking to? The world? No, the church. Don't love the world. And then at the end, what do we have? First of all, the lust of the flesh. What is that? The love of pleasure. What's the second thing he says? The lust of the eyes. That's covetousness, uh, money, wanting for yourself. And the third thing? The boastful pride of life. And that's what he's saying here. Now, I want you to consider a person here 
for just a second as we look at that. Now, who is the person that's the most anti or opposite from boastfulness that's ever lived? Jesus Christ. Who will be the person that's the most opposite of Jesus Christ in the area of humility that is boastfulness? The Antichrist. Let's look and just confirm that. I think if we were to look, say, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 8 and 20, it says this, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled up by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed the eyes like a, eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on his head and the other horn that came up and before the three of them fell, namely the horn which had the eyes and a mouth, are uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. This Antichrist, pictured by the little horn, will be someone who is boasting constantly. It says the same thing in Revelation 13 when he's talking about him. It says, there was given to the beast a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. Now, notice that. Arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Now, let me ask you something just so you know about this guy, the Antichrist. Is he speaking during the tribulation period? Are we going to be present on the earth in the tribulation period? No, we're going to be dwelling where? So who's he blaspheming? You. You notice that? Uh, blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. They ran away. They couldn't take it here anymore. Or whatever spin he's going to put on it. But he's going to be blaspheming us. The next of these three phrases is the word arrogant. And let's see what arrogant means. It means to refer, or it refers to the attitude of the proud, the attitude that produces the evidence of pride, such as boasting. This is the attitude. This is the attitude displayed in Proverbs that we looked at, where it said, haughty eyes. You can see the pride in their eyes. Who started sin? Lucifer. Our old friend Lou. Well, he's described, and this event is described in Isaiah 14, where he says, But you said in your heart, and he's speaking about Satan, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Stars of God meaning the angelic beings. I, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. That is arrogant. Was he boasting? No, this was what was going on in his heart. But of course, God reads hearts and knows exactly what was going on there. God hates pride. What are the results of pride according to God? Well, I have like five passages here I'm going to go through quickly. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So what does pride bring? Destruction. Now, it also says stumbling. That's the weakest translation of that word. That word is kishalon, and it means to fall or a calamity. In Proverbs 8, 13, it says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance. The evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. He hates pride and arrogance. In Proverbs eleven two, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. Uh, with the humble is wisdom. Pride produces or brings about dishonor on the one who has it. Proverbs 21, 24. Proud, haughty, and scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. And God refers to it as insolent. And finally, in Proverbs 29, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will bring him honor. Pride destroys a human being. That's what God is saying. And this is going to be something that is going to overtake the church. And church is going to be boastful. You know, I say that, and a couple of phrases come to my mind. The flagship church of the Southern Baptist Convention. The bell cow church of the Southern Baptist Convention. Did calamity befall after those things were being said? Fortunately, I believe we've learned. That is my hope. 
So we've talked about two things now. We've talked about boastfulness. We've talked about arrogance. And then we're going to get to this term revilers. Revilers. I believe this is kind of a weak translation of the, in the New American Standard, translating revilers. Uh, maybe the King James translation is a little better because this word, if you look at it in the Greek, in your notes you'll see it's blasphemos. Well, what word is that talking about, blasphemos? It's talking about blasphemy, isn't it? One blasphemes when he uses offensive words or makes statements that show no respect for God. That's what the Antichrist will be doing. That's what these revilers will be doing. Members of the church will be blaspheming God. Is that really going to happen? How about we ought to all pray to God because she is so merciful. Blasphemy. Pride results in one becoming a reviler, just like the Antichrist. And pride causes one to seek him, to build his own self up by tearing other people down. No wonder God hates pride in all of its iterations. Those three will be present in the apostate church and they are coming upon us. Now, the next thing he's going to do in this passage is bring out alpha primitives. Alpha primitives. And you say, I don't know anything about alpha primitives. Well, that's okay. You're going to learn today. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Just like A is the first letter in the English alphabet. And when you have an alpha primitive, that means you take the letter A or alpha and you put it before the word in Greek and it turns it negative. We have the same thing in English. If you look for these examples, atheist. Theist is someone who is about God or believes in God. Atheist believes no God. Atypical. Well, is someone who's atypical anywhere close to typical? No, they're the opposite. They're not typical at all. Abnormal. That means you're not normal, right? Now, I could use, you know, there's a particular school in Texas that uses initials that is abnormal. Uh, an A, and then there's an M, and you see, as abnormal. And then there's agnostic. Gnosis, which starts with the letter G, has to do with knowledge. So an agnostic, somebody, I don't know. I don't know whether God exists or not. I don't know. So we're going to now look at these. And the first one is apathase. And apathase is the start of this word disobedient to parents. Now, when I first read, read that, I think, oh, now, come on. You're putting disobedient to parents in there with all these other really important and serious things just because a child disobeys a little bit their parents. I mean, all children do that. Come on. Oh, but that's not exactly the point here. And, and we need to see what's really being said here. The real thrust of this attribute of the apostate church will be that the apostate church will have a severe lack of respect for the authority structure that God has established. God has established an authority structure through the family. And he set it up for our own good. It starts in the home. Do you remember the fifth commandment uh, that we've studied? Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land in which the Lord uh, God gives you, your God gives you. The parent-child relationship is established by God to bring under control the sinful nature of children. How many of you have helped raise children either uh, in a family setting either or taught children? Anybody here? Uh, fit into that category you've ever been involved in, in helping train and raise children? Well, now I don't know if I'm just different or not, but when uh, I was raising my two sons, I didn't have to teach them to be selfish. I didn't teach, have to teach them how to lose their temper or how to lie. They seemed to come on that on their own. Instead, I needed to teach them the opposite and train them in the opposite of that. And this practice or the goal of, of parenting and, and this family authority setup is to bring about discipline and training in the home. I want you to think about this a second. 
in our society, there are children that come out of homes that are well-trained and well-disciplined. When they get out of the home, they can then discipline themselves. There are also children that come out of homes and they are not well-trained and they are undisciplined. And one of two things happens. They're either going to have to get themselves in a situation where they're going to learn training and discipline like the military or like incarceration or else they will be completely undisciplined and usually end their life soon. That's what happens. God wants what's best for us and that's how he set this up. Now, there are two aspects, I think, of this rejection that I want to share with you. The first one has to do with training. In Proverbs 22, 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The second one is in Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. How does a parent provoke a child to anger? I think most of the time that happens when they, the parent puts unrealistic expectations on the child. Unrealistic expectations. But this kind of instruction here says not only do you have to train and discipline your child, you have to model for the child. You know, can you imagine the father who smokes two packs a day all his life Telling his child, you shouldn't smoke. Not good for you. How is that child going to respond to that? At this admonition found in two places I want you to feed. First in, in Deuteronomy. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. That means you should know them. You should know them well. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall... Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. What is that saying? First of all, this training, what's the attitude you're supposed to have towards it? Diligence, right? Isn't that what it says? Diligently teach them. And what is it saying? It's saying through every part of your life. Whether you're waking up in the morning and you're going to sleep. Now you see, people who were living in the time of Moses... They had an advantage that his parents did than over parents today. When the sun went down, what was there to do? Eat, family time, and go to bed. No TV, no radios, no phones, no computers, none of that stuff. What do you think was going on in that tent? The father was teaching the children. The father managed his home over the dinner table. I can remember growing up, my father managed the home over the dinner table. And if there were things that needed to be said to a recalcitrant son, they tended to come out at the dinner table. Now, I'm sure that happened infrequently, at least as I remember. But the fact is, that's what's supposed to be. Let me give you another example. It's in Joshua chapter 4. They had crossed the Jordan River at flood time. And God parted the waters in that Jordan River just like he did in the Red Sea. And he said, pick up, have one man from each tribe pick up a stone. The largest, heaviest stone that he can pick up. And those 12 stones, which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask your fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done in the Red Sea when he dried up before us until we had crossed. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Do you see what he's saying? Set up teachable moments that you can train your children. And who's supposed to be taking the lead in that? Oh no, the father works and the mother stays home with the children and, and takes care of them and trains them, right? No, that is not what God teaches. The primary responsible party is the father. And if the, one of the problems in the church is the father is not 
fulfilling his responsibility. You know, the end result of these principles can best be modeled, I think, in the lives of four young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The next phrase that comes after disobedient to parents is ungrateful, archiristos, and it means being unthankful. The word literally means without grace. Paul instructed Timothy in his first letter, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected is to receive with gratitude. What does God want us to be? Grateful for what he has given us, for what we have, and we need to learn that. That is important. Ungrateful people tend to believe that they are entitled or that they are owed in some way. Unfortunately, that's the way the church is going to become. They're going to expect others to do for them and to give to them what they should do for themselves. The next one, unholy. Anosios. It means impious, wicked. The church and its members are called to be holy. If you look in Leviticus 11.44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. That was the instruction he gave the nation of Israel. Now some of us might say, now wait a second. That's Israel. That's not the church. He didn't ever give that to the church. He gave that to Israel. They had to live a certain way. They had to follow certain covenants. That, that's not for us. And that's, they would say that, I guess, because they never read the first chapter of Peter. First Peter, which says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Does Peter say that that passage in Leviticus has no authority over us? Absolutely not. The next one, unloving. Now this one's interesting, and I want you to see. We should understand this phrase, unloving, to mean a lack of natural affections. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's look at this. In the Greek New Testament, you are familiar with three primary words for love. There's a fourth primary word for love. Let me talk to you about these. The first one is agapeo, meaning to love unconditionally. That's the kind of love that God has for us. That's the kind of love he wants a husband to have for his wife or a wife to have for her husband. Number two is the word phileo. It means to love as a best friends or compatriots, uh, phileo. The third that we're used to is eros, meaning to have a romantic love in a sexual way. Those are the three words we're used to, but there's another one. It's sturgios. I want you to look at this one. Sturgios means to love in a familiar way, such as the love a mother has for her children. The word for unloving here is asturgios. Not having that familiar love where children don't love their parents, where parents don't love their children, and it tears a family apart. It destroys the purposes of the family. How can someone train you as a father and a mother if they don't love you? You know, one of the things when I was growing up, I would serve as a counselor in uh, church camps. And I got a chance to, to do that for a number of years, and I'd take a week off from work or two weeks off from work to do that. And there would be, you'd be assigned certain kids in your cabin that you're responsible for. And I would find that if I loved those boys, they would respond unbelievably. I had to convince them first that I loved them. And it started to hurt me as I realized they're not used to being loved like that. They're not getting that in their homes. But if they came out there and I loved them, they'd follow me anywhere. They'd, they'd listen to anything I had to say. That's the way God planned it. But unfortunately, that's not the way we're doing it. And as a result of that lack of love in the family, what happens well, Jesus describes it in Matthew 24, 12. He says, because lawlessness increased, 
most people's love will grow cold. It'd be a lack of love. Now, here's something I thought. As I was looking at this triple here, disobedience to parents, unholy, unloving, I understand how unloving and disobedient to parents are really in the same genre. They're talking about the same thing. But does unholy really fit in that group? I think it seemed to me to be misplaced. I disagree now as I think back through. I really made a mistake allowing that to, to even enter my thoughts. Because this order speaks of the way holiness is acquired. Holiness is both modeled and taught in the family setting. You really cannot teach holiness to a person any other way as effective as in the family. And that's why it's right there in the middle. Parents, you must teach holiness to your children. And you can't teach holiness to your children unless you're modeling it to them. And so we have to come to see that and how important it is. Now, the next attribute of the church members during the apostate church period is irreconcilable. Irreconcilable. What do we want to understand that to mean? The word is best translated as unwilling or unable to forgive. Unwilling or unable to forgive. These people model the attitude of, you did something wrong to me, and I'll never forget that you did it, and I will wait for the opportunity to pay you back. I can remember a time when Chris and I were a lot younger. We tended to have that attitude towards others who would try to do something to us. Oh, yeah? We're going to decide either you're going to get twice as bad back or three times as bad, depending on what you did. But those were younger days and a lack of biblical understanding. In fact, Ephesians, I, were, I can remember one time as I was thinking about it, and my mother could read my thoughts as to what I was thinking. She said, I have a verse, Doug, I would like to share with you. <laughs> It's found in Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now, when I first heard her quote that verse, I said, ah, typical mother talk. <laughs> and then God started working on me. Do you recall the conversation Jesus had with Peter about forgiveness? It's in Matthew chapter 18 regarding how often Peter should forgive. Seventy times seven. You know, unforgiveness always hurts the one refusing to forgive more than the one who he won't forgive. I heard a description of something like that recently where they said it's like taking poison into yourself, thinking this is going to hurt them. That's what unforgiveness does. You know, as I was thinking about it this, this week, I thought back over some things I'd learned, and I came up with the perfect example of a man who really, I believe, was godly. And that's a man, Thomas Jefferson. Now some of you say, oh, now wait a second, Doug. We have been in history class... We have read history books. Don't you know about what he did with his slaves, in particular Sally Hemings, and how there was all of this adultery going on and all of these other things that showed that he really was a wicked man, that really showed he didn't have character like this. And over and over and over, now, they will tell you, his, these historians who support, well, it's easy, you just, there's newspaper reports on it. And there's essays on what he's done. My response, you believe everything that you read in the newspaper? If you do, I have some seafront land over in Arizona I would like to sell to you. <laughs> they were quite hateful in what they were saying. But you know what? They didn't like Thomas Jefferson. And you know why? He stood for freedom. And he stood for certain preserving certain rights and liberties. Where do you think our first ten amendments came from? I want you to read what Thomas Jefferson said. 
in a speech that he wrote. I know that I might have filled the courts of the United States with actions for these slanders and have ruined perhaps many persons who were not innocent. But this would be no equivalent in the loss of my own character by retaliating against them. I leave them, therefore, to the reproof of their own consciences, and if these do not condemn them, they will yet come a day when the false witness will meet a judge who has not slept over their slanders. That's pretty strong. All right. Now we switch to another category. The rivalry of rebels. The, a rivalry of rebels. The rivalry. And the first word it says is malicious gossips. Now, we have this whole series of alpha primitives. And there's alpha primitives up here and then alpha primitives that we're coming to. This is the only one that's not. You think, well, did he make a mistake or could he not come up with the word? No. And here again, I don't favor the New American Standard translation of this, phrase, this word. I favor, I think, the King James, which says false accusers. But it's maybe important to see what this word is in the Greek because you've heard it before. Diabolos. Diabolos. This is the word. In, in Matthew 4.11, you know, when Jesus was contending with the devil in the wilderness and there were those three temptations, after he was, the devil was beaten, and it said, and the diabolos left the scene, went away, quickly withdrew. He left him. Because this is what it's talking about. And we need to see that this is false accusations. What do we need to be prepared for? If you're a Christian, start with, that's the number one element in this crime. You believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe, thirdly, in the rapture. And you believe that salvation is only possible through faith. You're a domestic terrorist. And can be treated as a domestic terrorist. Or at least that's what they want. That's what they're trying to attain. They want to take people like us out. And this word, malicious gossips or false accusers, could be understood to mean a calumniator. A calumniator. Now, don't you hate it when the definition of a word you're not certain of gives you a word that you don't know what it means? <laughs> but it means a false accuser or a slanderer. And it's the devil. Do you know that right now, the devil is in heaven accusing me and accusing you? Before 24-7, he's up there accusing us constantly. And some of us he has to spend more time on than others. But let's go on to the next word before I get myself in trouble. Without self-control. Here, now we come back to an alpha privative. Acrates, and acrates means intemperate or without lacking self-control. Now, the apostasy which comes upon the church in the latter days of the dispensation of grace will be characterized by people who do not have the power to control their sinful influences. If they lack self-control like that, what will it tell you about them? Will it tell you that they're not a believer? Not necessarily. But what will it tell you about them? They do not have the control of the Holy Spirit operating in their life. Because what is the last and final fruit of the Holy Spirit? Self-control. They won't have that power. And we're going to see that again here. But you need to see this self-control. Maybe the most easy example for us to see of a lack of self-control is road rage. Now, that's something my wife doesn't have a problem with. No, let me put it this way. Uh, There's something I'm out, my wife doesn't participate in. She does have a problem with her husband participating <laughs> in that. And unfortunately, every once in a while, he will let the old self go. But I'm sure none of the rest of you ever participate in that practice. Never. But... Solomon said something about this. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. What is he saying there? 
He's saying the one with no self-control is defenseless against Satan's attack. Defenseless. You don't want to be in that situation. But that's the way the church will be. Now, this is maybe the hardest one I had to understand in the church, and that was brutal. This word speaks of savage, fierce, brutality. It really speaks of the de-evolution of mankind. And you say, I see that in the world. Can we ever really describe members of the church as brutal? It's coming and is here in many respects. Maybe we can start first with the things that are being said. Now, I personally don't get involved in social media. I consider it a waste and an opportunity for sin. But we're talking about this concept as being like an untamed animal full of savagery and brutality. That's the picture of this word. Not only are they brutal, but they are haters of good, opposed to goodness. They loathers of good. Those who strand for the truth today are considered to be extremists, fundamentalists. Now, you know, in some people's mind, fundamentalist is a good thing. Not for these people. That means a very bad thing. They're backwards and maybe even terrorists. And when we see the church having these attitudes, the attitudes like these, and to order their lives in these kind of ways, we can tell the church is becoming apostate. Now, the question is going to be, and we're not going to get to it today, but the question is going to be, what do we do as we see this? Verse 5 is going to start to tell us what to do. It's going to tell us the negative of which way to go. And then, after we get through the examples up through verse 9, pardon me, 6 through 9, then it's going to really tell what we should be doing positively. So we're going to get to those. I get impatient because I want to get to those. But we've got to understand what Paul is saying first. Let's look at verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, first of all, verse 5 just demonstrates that Paul's not describing the world at large. He's describing the church and the people in the church. And he uses his word, the form of godliness. That means a resemblance of, uh, the mere form of, but lacking reality. You could say hollow, so to speak. These apostates will nurture the appearance of godliness. In Jesus' time, did we have anybody like that? Yes, they were called Pharisees and Sadducees. And they modeled the appearance of godliness... These people will, of course, perform the sacraments and participate in baptism and Eucharist and marriage. But their form will be hollow and empty. They will have form, but no essence when it comes to godliness. Why? Because they denied something. What did they deny? They denied the power. They don't want that. Look again in that verse. They have denied its power. Where does the power come from in the Christian life? The Holy Spirit. They will deny Him being a part of their lives and doing that. Can a Christian do that? Yes. Will they pay for it? Yes. Did you hear what she said? She says there's a lot of people she's talked to who claim that they're Christians and try to live like, but they have no understanding of the Holy Spirit at all. Is that correct? How can that be? Well, we'll talk about that in just a second. And the Holy Spirit, it is impossible to live the Christian life. That's why they have a form of godliness, but they have denied its power. And we need to see that. They reject His power in their lives. But I want you to see some things before we finish. We have to learn to see this form of godliness as an outward display of religious religion and its practice. We need to learn to recognize that. How do we learn to recognize that? By knowing well what's really genuine, what's real. We should remember that God does not prescribe religion for his followers, but relationship. That's what he wants. What these apostates do is all for show. 
there's no, not power in their lives, and their lives clearly reflect the absence of the power of the Holy Spirit. Apostates, they wear a uniform, but they dishonor the name that's on that uniform. As time goes on, they will be found to be purveyors of the destruction of the church. But isn't that what Satan is all about? Destroying the bride of Christ? It seems to me today that we are seeing greater apostasy than ever before. Never before have we seen anything like this. And this displeases the Lord greatly. There's greater confusion among the church. And we have this influx of maybe bringing in other religions and other denominations. Diversity is something that is praised in our society. And so the people in the church want to say, we want to participate in diversity too. You know, and we're bringing in this confusion of influx of religious phonies and charlatans. And we're allowing it in the church. Well, you know, everybody ought to be included. No. Everybody shouldn't be included. These people who don't know the Lord or are void of the Holy Spirit shouldn't be involved in the leadership of the church. Shouldn't be involved in setting the path of the church. The church today is being deeply wounded. And it seems to me that the enemy is winning on all fronts. It seems that the church is not only tolerating self-love, it's advocating this uh, narcissistic behavior. It's just advocating it as if it were biblical. It appears to me that the writing is on the wall. And we've got to come to understand that we are making decisions that will affect us, our church, our children, and their relationship to the church, and our grandchildren and their relationship to the church. We have to be ready to respond. What should the church do now? Well, I'm going to give you just one thing. One thing that we should do, because we're going to talk about others in the future. The church must have shepherds who see as their goal, one of their goals, to protect their sheep from the ravenous wolves that seek to penetrate the sheepfold. Should the pastor be teaching and instructing? Yes. Should the pastor be encouraging? Yes. But the pastor needs to be protecting. The pastor needs to be rebuking. Because apostasy is creeping in everywhere and it has to be exposed. Now some of you may not like this, but I have to tell you I don't mean this in a mean way. I don't care whether you do or not. The pastors in our church, they need to stand up and say, Jesus calling is something you should leave alone because it is apostate and it teaches experience over scriptural truth. It misquotes as its primary text what God has said in Psalms. You know, be still and know that I am Lord. That's in the midst of a battle. It means to give up and not keep fighting God. But no, they want to say it is you, you be still, be at peace here, empty your mind, and let me drop into it the thoughts that I want. Maybe I could explain it this way. If you do that, you probably will get some droppings. And I'm not going to say any more about that. In addition, the church not only have that kind of a shepherd, the church must have intercessors who bathe their shepherd in prayer, that he be granted wisdom and insight before looking and have courage to stand up because you could lose people out of your church for saying things like that. We've lost people out of our class because I've said Jesus' calling is not from God. It's not God calling. It's someone else. We have to be prepared for that. But it all depends on courage of our leaders, and they need to stand up, and they need to tell us the truth and protect us and rebuke us when we're not listening. We've got to do that. And we need to pray for our leaders in our church and in the other churches in our uh, locale and community that this be done. Or apostasy is just going to, apostatic movement is just going to come in and take over. And there won't be any place where you can really worship left in a congregate setting. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend here together.
Father, help me to be courageous in what I say. I pray that you'll help our pastor to be courageous in what he says. I pray that we will really work towards solving this apostate appearance that is coming in the churches. Don't let it happen in our church, Father. Stop it from growing. I know Satan is strong, and I know he's got these devious plans. But, Father, there's no plan that he has that you haven't seen, no plan that he has that you can't control and you can't deal with. Help us to want to do what you want us to do, to be willing to do whatever you instruct us to do. Help us to support our pastors and leaders in prayer. Help us to be faithful in sharing your gospel. Thank you for how you have helped us. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Thank you for giving us the parents you've given us. Help us to speak boldly for you. I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. In the power of the Holy Spirit, which he gave us as a wonderful gift. Amen. Amen. 